And then once you get them, please open them up to Colossians chapter 2 as we begin chapter 2 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, as we continue verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God. Our goal is, again, we'll see if it actually happens, unless the Lord decides to take it somewhere else, to, once we finish the book of Colossians, actually to start with the book of Genesis, and just to go straight through the Bible from beginning to end. Um, we'll, see how, we'll see what the Lord has to do with that. Okay, here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. Our goal is to tackle the first 10 verses. It says this, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, attaining to all the riches or all riches of the full assurance of understanding, uh, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent of you in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your steadfastness in the faith in Christ. Now as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Lord, again, just let your word minister to each one of us individually as well as corporately. Lord, penetrate our hearts, invade them, and do what you want in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now imagine if, in my love for you, I saw you as impoverished, that we were all in a position of being poor. And yet somewhere in all of that, someone came up to me that was so undeniably wealthy that he had enough money to lavish every one of us with every great debt to be paid, with every great everything to be taken care of. I mean, down to buying us houses and cars and making sure all our bills were paid. All the food would be on the table at every given meal. And he was willing to do that for anybody that I claimed to love. And he said, here's the deal. I will give every person who wants to a car. And after giving every person a car, all I'm asking them to do is to drive to a specific location. Let's just say the location were just north of High Barnett, High Barnett Station. And with that, I'll give you very clear directions on how to get there. As a matter of fact, the car itself will do the driving. It will be programmed to actually take the route itself. All I'm asking for every person that you love is to invite them into that car. They can sit in the car. They won't even have to drive it. A driver will be there. But if they were to get in the car, it would take them to High Barnet. And if they were to get to that final destination, in doing so, all of their bills would be paid. All of their things, all their debts would be cleared. And they would be set up for the rest of their life on earth. Now, if I claimed to love you and I had that capacity within me, I would certainly invite you to that. 
I'd say the car is waiting outside. It's there and available for you. All it's asking for you to do, all, all this person is asking for you to do is get in the car and take it. Now, in that way, you, some of you what might look and kind of be like suspicious, understandably, because nobody's that kind and nobody's that benevolent. We understand that. And it's natural for us to kind of be like, what's the catch? What strings are attached? But if you knew me, and after a while maybe you watched that everything in my life was taken care of, you watched all my bills being paid, you watched me taking care of all my food was on the table, everything was taken care of, you'd at least see evidence of it. There would be a part of you sooner or later that would be intrigued to try so. But understand that there would be another person. Understand if there was a second person who hated the rich man, and so much so that sought to cause his life complete duress. And his ambition in life was to win a game with him. And the game that he was to play was, instead of getting you in the car, he would simply invite you to some other place where you would remain impoverished, where you would remain in debt, where you would remain completely living a life of squandering instead of a life of opulence. And his whole goal was to win you. You were the prize as, he was, as far as he was concerned. Now, you weren't a prize because he valued you. You were a prize because if he took you, then he couldn't, then you couldn't have the blessing of that rich man. And that rich man, in love for people, wouldn't get the blessing of being able to take care of you instead. That's exactly what we see in these verses. The only difference is, this isn't a temporary debt being paid. This isn't a temporary life being set up. This is eternal life for which God himself offers his own vehicle of himself. Who offers within himself the opportunity to go from one place, from a place of death and of debt, to a place of complete and utter lavished in God's love and joy and in peace and in patience and guidance and faithfulness. Uh, goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all the things that man seeks on earth but can't find in the temporary. And yet understand, there is a second entity that seeks to derail you. Now, he can do it in certain ways. And in the ways that he seeks to do it are the very ways that are called out in this text. Now, understand, Paul, again, has not personally met this church, but he knows that they've responded to the gospel. In other words, he knows that they've gotten in the car. He knows that by faith, they didn't just say, I believe in the car. I believe in the person that's kind. I recognize and acknowledge that he exists. But beyond all of that, they're willing to actually do what believing really is, which is to put your trust enough upon it that it governs your choices. And the choices then become, I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to let that car take me to where it is. But even in route, there will be opportunities for you to be derailed. There will be opportunities for you not to get in the car and still think somehow you're in route. And that's exactly what we see here. And Paul and his love for these people, I am so blown away. Take a look again at the first verse. It says, for I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, for those who have not seen my face in the flesh. Now, Paul here, recognize this, is in agony. The word conflict is the word agonia in the Greek. It means agony. Paul is agonizing over strangers. These are people who have not seen his face in the flesh. And yet what's interesting is he not only does this, but he goes to the place where he says in verse 5, that though I am absent of you in the flesh, and yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your steadfastness in the faith in Christ. Now, this guy, Paul, 
agonizes over strangers and rejoices over strangers. He agonizes and rejoices over this same group of people. Now, there's a part of me, I've got to be honest. As I look at Pastor Paul in example, I think, man, if I had that kind of passion, would I agonize over a stranger that I know has responded to the gospel? I mean, would I find myself wrestling internally and spiritually, emotionally over a group of people I've never personally met, but I heard responded to the gospel? I got to be honest to tell you, I could consciously or intellectually say, yeah, maybe, maybe I could recognize that there's a, you know, that there's people that would go, wow, that's really cool. They responded. That's really cool. They said, yes, I pray it be the same Jesus, the same gospel. But I can't tell you that I agonize. And to be honest, if I'm not that emotionally involved to grieve over people and to be that intense, I probably won't rejoice over them either. But then the inevitable question is, it has to be asked, at least in my own heart and perhaps in yours as well, do I even do this with people I know? I mean, not just the stranger I heard responded, but what about you guys? I mean, does my heart break? When I think about other individuals, does my heart rejoice overseeing steadfastness of faith? Order in their faith. Well, again, verse one, I want you to know what great conflict I have, what agony, what agonizing I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for as many as not seen my face in the flesh. Oh, come on in. Don't worry. No one will know. Suzanne even moved off the couch. (laughs) Colossians chapter 1. I'm sorry, it's chapter 2, verse (coughs) 1. And I got to tell you, one thing that's beautiful about a new church plant is that you see faces of people and your heart does break. Your heart breaks for people, to be honest, you have just met. People that you see one day look so hopeful and seem so full of potential and then the next day are in the MIA list. And the where are they now? Somewhere AWOL and you go, they seem with so much potential. And what Paul says is that his agony, and that's the word for conflict, the great conflict, what agony he has for these people that he's not met in Colossae and in Laodicea. And notice what it says in verse 2, what it is agonizing over. That their hearts may be encouraged, that they may be knit together in love and obtaining to all the riches of the full assurance the understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Three very simple things, and it's, a, it's certainly a sermon in itself, a message in itself, but for the sake of clarity of our entirety text, or the entirety of their text, it's this, that they would be encouraged, that they would be united, and that they would be assured. And what Paul recognizes, now I want, you to re- I want to remind you, Paul is in prison. It's somewhere between 60 and 62, or at latest 61 to 63 AD, which means he has been a Christian for nearly 30 years. And in those 30 years, he's been in ministry, at least 25 of them, or at least 22 of them. And as Paul has been in ministry through these years, he has watched people that seemed so hopeful, that seemed like they were so solid in their faith, that seemed like they responded with a big hallelujah, and then he watched them fizzle away. He watched them get discouraged. And he watched what discouragement does to believers or to people who've claimed to have a great faith. 
discouraged because they saw someone as well that they loved seem to respond to the gospel but not live for it? Discouraged because they saw something that looked like a great movement that in the end turned out to be something of man? Discouraged because they saw something where they saw in themselves the hope of being delivered from a sin or from a lifestyle or from a whatever, a mindset, and in the end of it all, back to struggling. And in that discouragement, he watched people fizzle away. And Paul grieves because he knows that of a church responding, there's a part of him that knows that some of those people will probably do that. That they'll probably get discouraged. And in that discouragement, one of two things is going to happen. You are going to throw yourself in your weakness at the feet of Christ. Or you're going to run back into the world to try to find strength somewhere else. Try to find comfort somewhere else. And let's be honest, beloved, if we could be honest with ourselves. We all have bad default comforts. Things that we'll run to for comfort that are not of God. And in these discouraging moments, the Lord allows these moments to reveal to us where our comfort is at that moment. It may be the bottle. It may be a relationship. It may be something that's an escape. And understand, that's what the world offers at best is a temporary escape. You may just want to go and watch six movies all in a row or play PlayStation for a thousand hours just because you think that it escapes. But in the end of it all, the problem with an escape is you're basically taking something that's staring you in the face and throwing it on your back like a back, uh, like a backpack. You're not escaping from it in the sense you can't, you're not running away from it. You're just not looking at it anymore. But I mean, if you took a bully and he was punching you in the front and then you just turned around, but you started to walk and the bully was punching you in the back, it doesn't make the bully go away. It just for the moment you try to ignore it, but you're still getting worked. And he knows that about discouragement. And God knows that about your discouragement. And you could try to escape. Or the other option is you can take that discouragement recognize your weakness and throw yourself at the foot of Jesus and when you at the feet of Jesus because he has two of them and if you do you recognize you're no longer trying to escape something you're actually relieving yourself of it you're actually surrendering it and in that moment discouragement actually becomes a platform for God's glory and now listen all discouragement is if you think about it, is an unmet expectation. I was expecting more from a person or expecting more from a thing, expecting more from whatever it is I invested in emotionally. And in the end of it all, it didn't turn out the way I expected more from me. And then I realized I'm not as heroic as I'd like to be. And you know what? None of us are as great as we'd like to be. We're all, if you're anything like me, we're, I'm a hero in my head. Man, I mean, except for the cape and tights, man, in my head, I am super Anthony, man. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to jump in this situation and, oh, everything's going to flee. But then it comes to practice and I realize, man, I'm not super anything. I'm super needy, but that's not necessarily the superhero you want in your life. Da, 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 super needy. Could someone help me? <laughs> but you know what? If I am a superhero in my head and I live that out, God will bring harsh reality to remind me of that. Because if I think I'm a superhero, I'll never be unified with you. 
unless you are actually underneath me. And that's the wrong place for you to be. And Paul says, look it, I'm agonizing with you guys because I really want you not to be discouraged. I don't want that. I don't want to watch you fade away. I don't want to watch you run back into something that isn't of the Lord, which is a temporary escape, but no permanent solution. And you know what? There isn't a person here. There isn't a person here that is immune from that. And Paul knows it. I mean, Paul's at the, I mean, he will, even at the end of his life, watch other people leave him that at this moment are still part of his crew. And that's only five years from this point. And he'll say, oh, these guys have, Demas has forsaken me. Titus, man, Titus. My pastor that I saw raised up. What happened to that guy? And I tell you what, it hurts. It hurts when I watch a pastor that I've been investing in for years turn to me and go, I fell. And you forget that a pastor is still a human being with temptations like anyone else. I'm not disappointed at that moment, but I am heartbroken. I am agonizing. And when I hear some wife call me and say, my husband, you know, he's lived this double life all these years with this Facebook entity and these other things. And it's finally caught up and it's awful. And he's just... You know, and he was pastoring two churches and they were just finally getting healthy. And more than the, the, the suffering of, this, of what he's caused himself, which hurts me, and what he's caused his wife, which hurts me, I think of all those people that are going to be disenchanted because of it. That unfortunately for God, he was human. Paul goes, man, I agonize over that. I don't want you to have to feel what I felt. I mean, after 30 years... You learn how to do the wrong thing and the right thing at moments like this. Those moments when you're like, you know. When you go from maybe I'm going to do something really dumb and stupid to I'm just, I just want to get alone and, and just be alone. Because I'm not, I know I'm not going to seek the Lord yet. I should, but I know I'm not. I'm just going to be nasty. And, and so I don't want to hurt anyone in this nastiness. I just want to smite me. You ever get to that point where you just get this attitude where you just like want to be nasty to yourself? You know, fine. I'll just like, I'll go drink coffee or something just because I hate it, you know, you know, or whatever. I'll go to a place that plays country music. That'll really, I hate it, you know, whatever. Of course, now you're learning what things I don't like. But anyway. But after a while, you know, it's like, I know, I know what those moments the Lord's going to get me. I know it. I just don't want to be caught doing something really stupid when, when the Lord finally goes, hello, can I come back in this? But I don't want to just pray for that. But I just want to pray you guys be unified. Because you know what? The only thing that will get in the way of <laughs> unity is us. <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, if we were really crucified with Christ, there is Jesus living in every one of us, and Jesus isn't divided. And if Jesus really is the prominent aspect, we will com be completely unified. But once we start showing up, mm, that's when it gets really bad. And when the body of Christ is divided, who suffers? If I divided your body, who would suffer? <laughs> Think about it. Yesterday, I had the privilege. I love doing this with my children. I, we went exploring. And all that is, is we kind of look. Now, one of these days, we're going to wind up at one of these tube stations. That's clearly not a place to take the kids. But just to say, 
Yesterday, that wasn't the case. We decided Barbican. I don't know. That's, you know, which, by the way, according to Ruthie, was really close to barbecue. So she thought that would be a really cool place because she loves barbecued meat. Turned out that it was close in the sense that that's where the Smithfield um, market is, which happened to be close, um, which is where they sell lots of meat. But it also, strangely enough, was the place where they used to draw and quarter people, which is a little strange to put those two things together. Uh, none, nonetheless, you know, and you just, they read this was the place where the bad cats hung out, you know, and people would be executed here and pickpockets hung out here. And they would drag people behind horses and then they'd draw and quarter them and then that favorite word, disembowel them. There's nothing about that word that makes your day. And you just, you walk by that place and then you're like, okay, who's ready to eat now, you know? <laughs> After all of that, where was I going? But in all of that, you just start thinking about the fact of, for a moment, about some person that just was so nasty and rotten that they cut off parts of their body and threw them far away from the other parts of their body. And you realize, that's what you do to somebody nasty and rotten. And you realize, that's what the enemy's trying to do to Jesus, because we're his body. And he's looking, he's going, oh, man, if I could just draw and quarter Jesus, that would do it. And Paul goes, man, I don't want to see that. I've watched what happens with disunity. And I've watched how disunity hurts Christians. It hurts the body. Every part of the body suffers. I mean, if you ever had something happen, like, for, well, I can tell you this. I've only skated maybe three times I checked with my wife because she's the detail person in my life. They've all involved my children. I've never actually done anything on skates other than normally go very slow to hold someone's hand. Um, that's okay, because where I came from, ice was something you avoided in Chicago. That wasn't what you did for fun. Um, you slipped enough already as it was. And once there was, um, having you know, taught martial arts, there was another martial arts instructor who was kind of known as the bad boy. You know, the kind of guys that, that are friends, but you're only friends because you really think it's wiser than being enemies, you know. But even as friends, sometimes your friends are the most dangerous people you have, you know. And this was one of those guys. And he was on skates and had a hockey stick and kind of came at me and thought it would be kind of fun to sort of pseudo fight. But you know this about guys, right? Guys start pseudo fighting, but it's the pseudo leaves really quick. And uh, so a friend of mine that was with me threw me a hockey stick. So both of us now have hockey sticks. I have no skates on. I'm standing on a frozen pond. He's got skates on and he comes at me and he's going to do this sort of move. He's trying to use the hockey stick like a staff. So we clasp our sticks parallel and at that point, I take the corner of the stick and I throw it up and hit him on the side of the jaw, which then kind of hits him hard enough to knock him down. Not aware of the fact the other end of the stick goes underneath the back of my knees, throws my feet up in the air, and I land on the tip of my shoulder blade, my scapula. Pops out my, my shoulder blade, or my, pops out my, uh, my collarbone, three inches off of my shoulder, pops it up, you know? And at that point, I kind of get up. The good news is he's down longer than I am. That's the way those, you know, I was like a sophomore in high school. I was like in 10th grade. So I get up thinking I'm all real cool with a sore shoulder. Two days, I kind of sleep on that thing. But I tell you what, my body, my whole body responds to it. I mean, my head starts to hurt. My neck starts to hurt. My legs start to hurt like they had anything to do with it. Finally, the third day I wake up, I can't feel anything in all of my arms. I mean, my whole arm is numb. And at that point, I'm like, it would be a really good time to go to the doctor. And so I go to the doctor and he basically says that it was trying to reset, but it was landing on a nerve and it was just deadening. If it had healed that way, I would have lost my arm because it would have killed the feeling in my arm. And ultimately, it would have just been, I'd have a dead arm. So I was really thankful I went. 
The whole point of that is, is that though this part of my body was out of joint, I mean, they put they removed all my ligaments and cartilage and put nylon webbing. It's all kind of fun. So I kind of have a fake, it's part of my Frankenstein rebuilding. But in all of that, the whole body responded to this thing. I mean, there was no part of my leg that was attached to my shoulder, except for the fact it was in the same body. There was no part of my head that was attached to my shoulder, but my head responded just the same. My whole body got tired after a while because it was so trying to heal. You know what it's like when it's the flu? It's like, some, it's like I know I'm bringing up a sore subject, but you know what it's like where your whole body just basically seems like it's on strike, like the every fourth day we have here with the public transportation. You know, I mean, it's like all of a sudden it's like my hands hurt. Why do my hands hurt? This is a flu. You know, whatever. It's like just it's like, well, I want to be rotten, too. But you realize that Paul recognizes that about the body of Christ. All it takes is a little disunity for it to hurt the whole body. And you know what? Any part of the body can start it. That's the problem. I mean, the foot can start disunity. If it's out of joint, the rest of you is going to know it. And we think, well, I'm not really important. I'm just a sort of a, an act. I'm like the appendix. I just sort of sit there. But if you flare up, the whole body's going to know it. For instance. And Paul is agonizing because he really wants to see them unified. He wants to see them not discouraged, but rather to be encouraged and unified. And then the last thing, and this is in verse 2. And are we going to get to 10 verses? We'll see. All right. And it says, and I love the fact that he calls us. Notice he says, and attaining to the riches of this. Paul looks at this third thing. Like it's great wealth. As if discouragement were poverty, unity were being black and even, but this thing being wealthy. And what is this thing? Fully assured. For you to have literally the word, for what it's worth, pleurophoria is the word in Greek, literally means to have complete and absolute confidence. And he tells us here that, that Paul, what he really wants is for you guys to be wealthy and being completely sure. In other words, the other side of that is doubt. Now understand that there is a battle that will take place within each one of us between complete and absolute confidence and complete and absolute non-confidence or confidence in the opposite. In between that is doubt. And it's a tug of war. And might I just say, as it's a tug of war, the simplest truth of it is the one that will win will be the one that you feed. It's that simple. We read that faith comes by hearing and that the word of God. That's what you're going to get. You will be strengthened by what you feed. And you watch a person who has weak faith, who's constantly feeding it with the world, constantly feeding it by the flesh, constantly feeding it, feeding, you know, with all of these things that are so anti-God but they have no time to actually listen to what the Lord has to say listen you guys on the other side of it you could watch a person be totally rich in other words the moment you start hanging out with things that constantly encourage your doubt you are spending your faith you are giving up that rich that wealth to someone who has no idea what to do with it they're just taking it away from you, not so that they could even benefit from it, but rather just so that you could be poor. 
Now here it is, the vehicle waiting outside for you to get in. And Paul says, do you have any idea how utterly wealthy it is for you to have the confidence to get in and to stay in? Because if you don't, you'll never get in. And so Paul says, look at that, I agonize over these people because what I really, really want is for you to truly be absolutely sure. So I want you to be encouraged, to be unified, and to be absolutely sure. Avi says here, of the understanding, full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God. Which, by the way, the, the knowledge of, of the mystery of God, he already told us in chapter 1 what was that mystery in 127. Because in 127, it said, this is the mystery of God, Christ in you. Now remember, all a mystery is, is something you could not understand without the Holy Spirit. In other words, the world can't understand it. It will always be a mystery until the Holy Spirit makes it clear to you. And so he says, look it, I want you to be absolutely sure of this mystery. The fact that you understand it tells me the Holy Spirit's at work. And what that is, is that Christ lives in you. Now with that in mind, we move then to this first landmark point. Now look, if we are going to allow this car to take us to this place where we belong, if we're going to allow this vehicle to take us to the place of, of the destination God intended, there will be four landmark facts, not debatable issues, not hopefuls, but landmark facts. And if we embrace these four landmark facts undeniably with full assurance, your life will be transformed as a Christian today. And here's the first of them. By the way, every one of these is going to fly, then fly in the face of the world. I want to warn you of that right now. Which, by the way, includes all of the world that's seeped into the church. He tells us, I want you to be completely fully assured. And then he says in verse 3, In whom, that's Christ, is hidden all, not some, not most, but all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, knowledge is some information that you gather. Wisdom is properly applying that information. Proper application to your information. And he says, Jesus is all of the treasury of what you could know. Jesus is all the treasury of how you apply it. And that becomes the first, the first landmark fact that flies in the face of how the world has crept into the church today. You could spend all your time investigating every other religion on how to engage it. You could spend all your time trying to figure out how to be culturally relevant. You can memorize movie lines. You can memorize, figure out how to, to make Jesus apply to the latest movie. And whether that's the Christ of Avatar or the Jesus of the Matrix or whatever it is of the day. In the end of it all, if you don't know the Jesus of the Bible, you're going to make him a deluded individual who's less than the perfection that, he's, that God makes him in Scripture. In Jesus is all of the treasure, which means everything else is information, but it's not the most valuable information. That's what he tells us. The most valuable information is Jesus. The most valuable wisdom is Jesus. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you spend your whole life investigating, and, he, and here's the best way to put it as far as I can tell. I have a handful of apps on my iPhone 
And those particular apps, some of them are games. Now, I've never been a huge sort of video game player. But, you know, my wife and I, we're old enough to remember Pong. So we remember when video games was just, you hooked it up to your TV and went, woo, look at that. Bloop, 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 bloop. Bloop, bloop. That was it. I mean, now it's like 3D things and you strap all over it and you have to like, you cough and you turn and you move and you, I mean, there's all kinds of weird, you know, it's like, it's a weird what you can do today. Yeah. I mean, there's no bloop, bloop going on anymore. Now it's like, these are coming at me. I got to watch out and grab this thing. You know, it's amazing the difference. But there's a couple games I play and I don't play them often. They're games I'll play perhaps like, for instance, on a bus or if I've got, you know, I'm on the underground and this will be sort of the moment for it. But you know, no matter how good I get at those games, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I beat my high score. Woohoo! Who cares? It's not real life! In the end of it all, I could be the absolute best at Ninjump. Or the absolute best at whatever the game is. But in the end of it all, it's just not reality. And I could say, hey, let me tell you, let me fill you in on all kinds of the inside things. And I want you to know when you see this thing come by, the next thing that's going to happen is this. And there are people that are experts in these things. But in the end of it all, it's just information for a fleeting fantasy that isn't reality. It's just really temporary. And maybe you can look good when everyone's having an Xbox party, but it only lasts for a, part, a small period of time. And you could be like, Mr. GameCube, I'm Mr. GameCube. But that's like, for who? For how long? And all the other information, beloved, is for this vapor we call the life we live right now. But it's not forever. And you can learn it. Hey, listen, I'm going to say something really just brash, not like that's a new thing for you to hear. There will be no Islam in heaven in eternity. There will be no Buddhism in eternity. There will be no Paramahansa Yogananda and man's eternal quest and Hinduism. There will not be 330 million gods in eternity. All of the things that make things so complicated today aren't going to be there. In the end of it all, there will be Jesus. And we will stand before one judge, one defense attorney, one God, one hope, one friend, one father. That's it. It's going to be really, really simple. I love that. And he goes, look it. This will unify you. This will encourage you. And this will sure you up. Everything you need to know is in Jesus. All the valuable stuff. That doesn't mean you can't learn other stuff. But in that other stuff, no, it's not the most important. There was a time when all education, you taught kids to write so they could read the Bible. Matter of fact, the Bible was your primer. I have a book from the 1700s in, from England or from the 1800s from England where what you, the way you taught the kids the alphabet was every letter stood for a verse or a truth from the Bible. Boy, today, that book You'd get sued for it if you had it in school, in both America and in England. But it was the official primer of its day. Now, beloved, listen, that's our landmark. We know, we know that we're going the right way if that's the first thing we see. 
if and as a pastor, if my, what comes out of my mouth is more about anything, anything else than Jesus, nail me on it politely, but nail me on it because you can get the world anywhere else. This is where you're supposed to get undiluted heaven. All right, now look at, let's move on. Verse five. Oh, verse four. First of all, our landmark challenge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For what it's worth, the word deceive is the, well, the word, and if, I think it's a really interesting word. The word is paralagitsumai. Para means beside, like a paragraph is beside the writing. Logitsumai means logic or a line of thinking. And what it literally means, it is not that it stops you. It just steers you on another road. That's the idea here. Is that someone would give you a side logic and that someone would do that, would would persuade you to do so, would convince you. In other words, one of the ways to keep you from getting to that destination is to simply encourage you to grab the wheel and steer it onto another road. And he goes, I want to warn you, that's out there. And the worst part is, you could say, I'm still going north. I must be okay. I'm still heading near the direction. What's the difference? But if there's only one destination and not just God's north, go get him. And this will happen, beloved. Because, and here's the worst part is that most of the people that are in this route are absolutely convinced that they're totally safe. Hey, you know what? It's really cool because in the end of it all, it's kind of, it's, it's really like Jesus. It's like the Jesus of the Bible. But there's, I'm going to add a few things that I feel I have, I'm entitled to add or take away from. Because he demands this. But I know he demands it in this, this, oh, that. And by the way, that makes this road very narrow-minded. But Jesus says, narrow is the way to salvation, beloved. It's difficult and it's narrow. It's rigid. But there's room for every one of us on it. You want to be wide-minded? That's fine for destruction. You could say, how dare you? Look at, I'm not the one who wrote the, world, that wrote the rules. If God invented me, he has a right to do it the way he wants to. And I'm thankful for that, actually. Okay, so listen, beloved. In the end of it all, am I sure that my thinking lines up with God's word? To the rigidity of it, to the narrowness of it. Or am I saying, hey, listen, I have a right to, you do have a right to, do, to invent whatever road to destruction you want. You have a right to say, I decided this is the way it is. That for me to be holy, I'm going to cover myself in honey and roll around in leaves in the autumn. And that will make me holy. Hey, invent whatever way you want. But the Bible has the right to tell you the one way to salvation. You could say, how dare God do that? Excuse me, he's your inventor. And the only way where God paid your bill was the way of the Bible. Everything else is you come up with it. Now, verse 5. Though I'm absent of you in the flesh, I still am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of faith. Now, understand, good order for what it's worth. The word's taxi. Taxi, like a taxi outside. That's the word in the Greek. And it literally just means a proper or right arrangement. In other words, things are progressing in right order. And then your steadfastness, and I do really love this word, just means something, really the word steroma, we get the word steroid from it. It means to be strong and secure. It means to be resolute and established. In other words, 
Paul says, you know what I'm really... What I rejoice over is I hear that you guys are going the right way. Things are going the way that they're supposed to go. And that you're resolute to stay there. I want to warn you, someone is going to challenge you to steer. And they're going to call themselves a Christian. They're going to call themselves believers. Hey, come on, we're all believers. We're all believing the same Jesus. No, we don't. I believe in the biblical Jesus. And if you don't believe in the biblical Jesus, then you believe in a different Jesus. Is that narrow-minded? As narrow-minded as the word is. But beloved, I'm only saying this because it's for your benefit and mine too. I'm going to stand before this God and I want to be able to say I have properly represented him. Hey, listen, if if I go to the doctor because I have strange purple spots on my elbow, and that seems a little odd, and I go to the doctor and I say, hey, I've got purple spots on my elbow. And he goes, strange, we've discovered this new disease that, that, that the clear and obvious symptom is purple spots on the elbow. But I have exactly the cure for it. That's the good news. It's one shot. You get the shot in the elbow. I want to warn you, if you don't get the shot, this is going to kill you. You will get purple spots all over all of you, and it will ultimately take your life. One shot. And I trust the doctor to be sane. And so I take the shot, and boom, it, it cures it almost instantly. And then I'm walking down the street, and I see it, and, I, and all of a sudden I say, Hey, James, and I hold out my hand to James, and James holds out his hand, and I happen to notice that his elbow is covered in purple spots. I say, James, seems a little strange. Have you noticed you have purple spots on your elbow? He goes, Oh, yeah, 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 that's nothing. I says, No, actually, that might be something, James. I want you to know I've had purple spots on my elbow. So this isn't me looking at you like, how dare you have purple spots? Look at you, you rotten thing. I've never, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you don't know, I've had them too. But I have a doctor that knows that there is a very fatal disease that that is the primary symptom of. And that symptom can be cured. Not just the symptom, but the very cause of it can be cured. You won't have to die, James. Come to my doctor with me. James may pull this card on me, and I hear this one every once in a while. Oh, aren't you self-righteous? Has anyone ever called you that? Hey, first of all, follow me in this, okay? Self-righteous means you are right by yourself. Think about it. There is no self-righteousness in Christianity. Think about it. Because first of all, I didn't diagnose my problem. I didn't constitute my cure, nor did I apply my cure. Every aspect of me being made right involves somebody else. Now, James may say, actually, I've decided I like purple spots. Kind of cool. I think it'll get the girls. I just walk around and go, how you do it? <laughs> Pretty unique, aren't I? And I look at James and say, James, you're going to die. James goes, oh, just leave me alone, Mr. Self-Righteous. Ironically, if you think about it, James is the one self-righteous because he has by himself decided what's right and wrong, and he has by himself made himself right in that order. James is the self-righteous one. Now, I'm not, this is hypothetical. Sorry, James. (laughs) Lo and behold, Micah comes walking up to me, and I go to give him a hug, and as I go to give him a hug, he goes like this, and I go, whoa, bro, you've got purple spots on your elbow. And Michael looks at me and he goes, well, who, who do you think you are? Well, shut up, man. Don't tell anyone. I've got, so I've got purple spots. Shut up. And I'm like, hey, bro. I'm just here to tell you I care. And because I'm here, because I care, 
I want you to take care of that because that could be fatal. That will be fatal unless it's treated. Micah says, hey, listen, deal with this. I've already decided the way to handle it. And I've noticed that if I go and take H, you know, HP brown sauce and I rub it on my elbow, the purple spots go away for about a half hour. I'm like, well, congratulations. But wouldn't you like to be cured from it? Oh, no, I just want the spots gone. So every half hour, oh, sorry, there's my alarm. I got to go put some HP sauce on my elbow. I'm like, I was wondering why you smelled like that. I thought you just came out of a pub, Micah. But there he is, and his elbow's dripping in brown sauce, but he has no purple spots for the moment. I know that he's going to die still. So I'm like, Micah, so the symptoms are gone for the moment, you're still sick. You need to go to my doctor. And you can say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Closed-minded. I have a way too. My way gets rid of the symptom. I go, this isn't about symptoms. This is about cures. But I'm happy this way. I actually was born with these spots. And I have a right to be purple spotted if I want to. I'm like, yes, you have a right to die. But my doctor can cure you. And out of love for you, I'd like to take you for a shot. A shot? I don't want a shot. Oh, come on. That hurts. Yes, it will hurt. But it's worth it. Finally, Kalisha comes up to me. And I say, hey, Kalisha, go to give her a hug. And I see purple spots. I was like, what is it? Does the entire world have purple spots or what? But as she does, I go, Kalisha, listen, out of love for you, my doctor wants to cure you of those purple spots. And all of a sudden, as she pulls up her sleeve, you start to see that those purple spots have already spread. They've spread to her arms. They've spread to, to her feet. And I go, wow, you're starting to see the symptoms of this thing pretty bad. It is growing, isn't it? Kalisha, let's go to the doctor. And Kalisha says, you know, I'm uncomfortable with this, but I'll go. And so she goes. And as she goes, she gets the shot and she's made well. And then Kalisha and I start walking around and we try to find James and we try to find Micah. And we want to tell him again, you can be cured. And James will look and go, oh, Kalisha, you probably never had purple spots. And she's like, oh, no, no, listen to me. I had purple spots all over most of me. And James is like, well, you don't have them now, so I don't believe it. And there's something to be said about when something is a cure instead of a symptom changer. Because when you're cured, sometimes people won't even see the person you used to be. He goes, Paul says, I want to warn you guys. Because there's someone that's going to try to steer you aside to a different route, but make you still think you're okay. Oh, maybe it'll handle a couple of symptoms. Now hear me out. God made you with an appetite for, for companionship so that you would find companionship with him. And the world says, well, let me just steer you off a little bit to the side and you can find companionship. And you can be complete in your companionship and add a little God to it if you want to. But all of a sudden, Jesus isn't the one that's the center anymore. Now, the other thing is, and it treats the symptom, but beloved, it doesn't cure the problem. And that becomes the issue that he's warning us about. Now, listen, one more thing, and obviously we won't go as far as, well, as I intend, but that's okay. The Lord's driving, and that's the important thing. Let me just give you verses 6 and 7, and we'll wrap it with this. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And then he gives us three very beautiful things, and I want you to notice the succession in verse 7. Actually, ultimately four. He says that you are rooted and then built up in him 
and then established in the faith as you have been taught, and then abounding with it in thanksgiving. Listen, this is the life of a Christian. This is the route you're going to take, but it is also, listen, the route of a church too, a proper church that God intended. Notice it starts with rooting. That's where it has to start. And by the way, for what it's worth, the word is Zubidzahu. It means to root, to grow roots. Do you remember when Jesus talks about the parable of the seed and the sower? There, there's one seed that sprouts up really quickly. I mean, one doesn't even root at all. One, on the other hand, <coughs> sprouts up really quick because the earth is shallow. It's a shallow response. But when persecution comes because of the word, it fades away and no longer. It fades away to death. It fizzles. It burns out. Now listen. He says, because it had no real roots. When something is going to stand against the storms and the heat that come, you got to have roots. And what Paul says is, when you receive Jesus, you received him. Remember that and stay that way. When you receive Jesus, you received him with a simple faith. It was uncomplicated. And hear me out. Maturity is not supposed to kill that childlike faith. By cynicism or otherwise, it's supposed to develop it. I should have more of a childlike faith today than I did the day I came to him. And the reason is because I know him better. I mean, when I look at my daughter, Ruthie, and Shantae when she was Ruthie's age, <coughs> they don't think twice about jumping into my arms. Ruthie will go up five or six steps. And when I come walking in, it doesn't matter what I'm holding on to. It doesn't matter whether I'm carrying a bathtub in my arms. She'll jump. I know that enough now where I know when I walk through that door, if she's there, I have to already drop everything almost in a panic to be ready to catch her. She has no doubt in the world I will catch her. She doesn't look and analyze whether my arms are free. She doesn't look or analyze whether or not I look tired. She doesn't look or analyze whether or not my arms fell off on my way in. Whether I got in another fight on ice and I'm completely dislocated. She doesn't look for any of that. All she knows is that's dad, he'll catch me. If she gets tired of walking, which usually happens within four steps, um, she just knows that the shoulders should be a place she can ride. It is her first chariot. It really doesn't matter whether or not my head has fallen off, whether or not, it doesn't matter whether I am being eaten by bulldogs. The bottom line is, if she wants a ride, she knows those shoulders are there. She also knows that that dad's going to be there to tuck her in at night. That dad's going to be there to read the word with her at night and to pray with her and kiss her goodnight. If that's what she wants. She will get the word every night whether she likes it or not. She'll get prayed for whether she likes it or not. The tuck in, that's the, the negotiable part. She just knows that. Both of my children, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. They just know, man, if, if dad's within earshot, they'll just, if something comes to their heart, they'll say, dad, by the way, I could be juggling Ginsu knives, but if they say, Dad, by the way, my head's going to turn. No, I don't juggle Ginsu knives regularly, so you're pretty safe with that. 
But I, I learn from my children. Do I jump into the arms of God with that absolute abandon? You know, I just know, man, God's going to catch me. Now, I'm not talking about being presumptuous. I'm not saying spend all your money on something, on lottery tickets, and just know God's going to catch you and pay it off. That's not it at all. But when God says, do it, do I jump without really considering it with great concern? Do I know it's his job to take? I've never seen the girls, both of either of my girls say, Dad, how much are the bills and are you going to be able to pay them? No, I've watched my wife do that, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> the issue is simple. They just somehow know that it will be provided for. There will be food on the table. There will be a house for them to stay in. They're safe. I've watched when, when they feel unsafe out in London proper, wherever that be. They don't go running to try to find a police officer first. They cling to me. They somehow are just confident they will be safe if they're with dad. And you know what? Praise the Lord. And I learned from that. At those moments, will I do that with the Lord? When I find them discouraged, and they sit down and they tell me. When they're scared and they sit down and tell me. I'm thinking, wow, that's exactly the way I'm supposed to be. That's the way I was when I came to the Lord. Because to respond to Jesus, I had to jump in his arms expecting him to catch me. And that's how it starts, isn't it? And this is, listen, rooted, that's first. You grow your roots. Then you're built upon. That's the second thing. Things get added. The word, by the way, for it was epiokedema. Oikos means house. Doma means like a dome, like a roof on the house. Or that which then you can build another layer on. Epi means upon. To be built up literally means that you put another thing upon it so that you can continue to build up. So think of this, as, if you will, as if you were building a plant with bricks. That once you put the brick in its place, it actually became part of the plant. You grow roots first, then things get added to it. And then as they get added to it, the third thing is it says then it gets established. And it just means it gets strong. So that it isn't going to bend by what blows or what comes by. And then fourth, it bears forth fruit. In this case, thankfulness, gratitude. Now hear me out, beloved. That's the way that God builds you, and that's the way he builds a church. Listen, the first thing he does is he builds a core. He builds a core, and by the way, of believers, of people who love Jesus, who will be, who will be planted in the house of God to grow roots, so that it has a place to draw from. Because that's where the... the, the the plant grows, that's where the plant draws its nutrients from. Now look at, I am not in any way discouraged, but rather encouraged by what the Lord does in regards to consistency. Who he brings in in the beginning to just say, look at, I'm going to do establish something. Think about how Jesus did that. He started with 12 that he invested in. Now, granted, one of them was a weasel. But, well, they all were weasels. One was just infinitely so. But in that, there were 11 guys, we could say, that he invested in like a core. But that 11 became 120 by Acts chapter 1. There were 120 people. And you know what they were doing? They were just praying. They were just praying. And as they were praying, that's where it started. Then comes Acts chapter 2, where God pours forth his Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people... Get saved. So we go from 11 
to 120, and that was where it grew, it grew roots, and from the roots then it was built upon, and as it was built upon with 120, the Holy Spirit established it. And as the Holy Spirit established it, then it abounded in fruit. And that's the way that God properly plants a church. I've watched churches get planted with just massive amounts of momentum and then fizzle out just as quickly because to be honest, it just doesn't have any roots. On the other side of it, I love the fact that God just says, let's establish this. Then I'll build upon it. And then I'll establish that. And then it'll bear forth great fruit. Do I expect that? Absolutely. I don't just think it'll happen. I am sure it will. We've watched it happen. We know how the, the Lord works in this. And that's what he tells us here. And he says, in the route, that's what you're going to see in your own life. I mean, in the beginning, you're like, wow, I don't see a tremendous amount of fruit happening. God says, because I'm growing roots. Those roots, by the way, you'll be grounded and rooted in faith. Grounded and rooted in love. And that's what God intended for every one of us. That you will be more strong in your trust in Christ and you will lose yourself for him. Because in the end of it all, we give Christ the right to reinvent us. That's the beauty of it. So hear me out. With every one of us, we go from rooting to becoming a, a student. I mean, from saved to student. And as a student, he builds upon. And as he builds upon, he strengthens and establishes. But then as we go from saved to student, we become a servant. And as we become a servant, we start abounding with fruit. Now let me wrap this up so we can go to prayer, friends. Paul says, again, I agonize. Because though I don't know you, I know that you'll be challenged with discouragement and I want you to be encouraged. I know you'll be challenged with disunity, but I want you to be unified. And I know that you're going to be challenged in regards to your assurance. But I want you to be assured. Because I want you to recognize, and let me just give you permission to believe the truth, that Jesus is the most valuable information you'll ever have. And the most valuable wisdom you'll ever possess. But I want to warn you, there are going to be others that will try to steer you aside and still say, this is cool Christianity, this is cooler Christianity. Jesus is part of it, but he's not primary. Or he's not the thing. He's one of the things. That's a side road, but it doesn't lead to the same place. I want to warn you that's going to be out there. But though that I'm not with you personally, man, today would be, we'd say my, my heart is with you. And I love to watch you guys going the right way, doing it in right order, which he tells us what that is here. Doing it in the right way, in the right order, not just going, you know what? Today I want to bear forth great fruit, but I just got saved. And God says, look it, let me grow some roots in you. That's the kid who shows up. He's never played guitar. And he sits down and he says, today I want to be able to go, like, bro, you're going to need to learn the basics. You need to get rooted somewhere. And you're like, well, then you're a lousy teacher. No, actually, I'm a better teacher. Learn the basics. There's a guy that comes in and says, I want to learn how to be Jackie Chan in one lesson. Good luck. Learn your basics. One of the first things you learn, by the way, is how to fall. So you learn how to fall in a way that you can get back up again. That's a really great lesson for all of us, is how to get back up. But man, I just want to be, wow, the first day. Good luck. That isn't the way it works, beloved. Hey, I want to be able to speak a language fluently in one lesson. Good luck. 
And you know, you go, and then they all look at you and say, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> but I'm fluent. I had my one lesson. On lesson. No, you're idiot. <laughs> I just got saved. I want to be Billy Graham today. Do you know, even Paul had to learn that. I remind you, when Paul got saved, he tried it out in Damascus and they, and they tried to kill him. He tried it in Jerusalem and they tried to kill him. And they shipped him off back to where he came from. Where he may have been for five, eight years. More than likely learning how to be a tent maker. And then finally they call him over to Antioch where he could be a teacher. And he was learning. And by the way, it's interesting the words that God uses because in the beginning he argued with the people in Damascus. He argued with the people in Jerusalem. Anyone of you know that arguing isn't going to get you where you want to get? It's the Holy Spirit that's got to do the work. And Paul was a good arguer. Uh, he, I mean, when it came to the brawl with words, he was a heavyweight. But it didn't get him where he needed to be, beloved. Paul had to learn that the gospel's the power of salvation, which he would tell us, and the Holy Spirit's the one who convicts, which he would also tell us. But he had to learn those things, just like us. And beloved, I was, I'm here to let you know that Paul was rejoicing because he saw them starting to grow roots. He heard it, at least. He heard and he saw that ultimately they were ultimately abounding with thanksgiving they were already starting to bear fruit but it happened in the right order they grew roots god added to it he strengthened it he added to it he strengthened it he added to it he strengthened it and then you started abounding with thanksgiving and you know you read the bible and you're like i don't get it all and god says of course you don't get it all how come i don't get it all god says look at i don't build the fourth floor without building the first three why would i add a leaf when it's not leaf time yet stock time right now but i'm thankful that i'm watching you do it in right order and that you're resolute to stay on course but be careful there will be those that will say jesus and hey beloved there's no jesus and it's jesus that's what it's about here as we go to prayer i want to pray for every one of us and what about you let me ask you a little heart check for a moment am i driving like a drunk man out there in my faith going to this thing and that thing and just swerving the road? Or am I actually staying course? Is my walk complicated? Or is it Jesus first? Because when the discouragement hits, I'll know whether it's Jesus first. When I have the opportunity to be disunified and make me first, I'll know whether my life is Jesus first. When I see doubt rise up in my life, I'll know whether it's Jesus first in my walk. And that's what this church is going to be. And that's my heart for you as a pastor. Jesus died on a cross to be first. So he could pay for every one of your sins. He took your, your sins and who you were born to be. Who you and I were born to be. And he nailed it to the cross. And he died there. And it died there. All of our guilt... Because I was born for destruction and so were you. The Bible says we were born children of wrath. Decide that on your own. That's scripture. And then he rose from the grave, preeminent and first. And beloved, wants to be the first love, your first master. 
Because he's first in all of creation. He deserves to be in our hearts. You pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you work in our hearts. Lord, I pray for anybody that's been experiencing discouragement and has been seeking to escape rather than to relinquish. I pray today, God, that you would show yourself, Jesus, you would show yourself the first place we go to, not the last. And in that, Lord, that we would find the encouragement that we need in you. <clears throat> I pray, Lord, for those right now that have experienced disunity. And Lord, I know that that could just be a simple comment that gets entertained. A nasty thing said about another. A moment said in a moment of discouragement even. Or in frustration. Oh Lord God, let us take it to you. That you would be the first place we go. That we could be unified. Lord, I pray for those right now that have been battling doubt. Maybe there's sin in their life, Lord, or issues in, in, that they're dealing with, Lord, things that trouble them, things they see that don't add up around them or in them. Lord Jesus, if you are first, then you have the right to be the architect of our reinvention. Lord God, you have the right to be preeminent and be our Lord as you intend. But Lord, I pray right now that you would, even here, Lavish us with the riches of full assurance. Oh Lord, and in that full assurance, we could rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would put us in proper order. And I know this happens in each season. We root, and then we grow, and then we're established, and then we bear fruit. I pray you would continue that in each of us. I pray that as we root, Lord, that we root deep into you and therefore do not cling to the things of this world. And in that, Lord, that we would draw all of our appetites to be quenched in you. All of them. And that you would add And that you would strengthen and establish. And you would bear forth great fruit. I pray for this fellowship, Lord. The very same thing. I pray you would bring in those, Lord, that you want to be part of the roots, so to speak. And that you would grow them deep into you. Deep into you. And we recognize, Lord, sometimes the way that we root into you is in the crucible of suffering. In moments of grief and turmoil. Sometimes it's in moments where we, where we just don't even know who we are. We don't even know what life is about and things seem so horribly undefined. And we're grappling and Lord Jesus, then you show yourself as the answer. And again, great roots grow. But with that then, Lord, add and strengthen and establish and bear forth great fruit.
And Lord, I thank you for your active and alive word. And I just pray, Lord, if there be any that have not ever really accepted the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. They've been steered to drive the the frontage road instead of the highway that goes to you. And they've not made you, Jesus, primary, but secondary at best. Right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show them, Lord, their need to accept your gift, your payment for our guilt. And in that, we forfeit the rights to our lives of entitlement. And in that, we we relinquish them to you. That you, Lord, would reveal yourself the way you desire as the one who builds us and establishes us and strengthens us as you desire. Invent us, Lord. And I openly again confess you as Lord, knowing you died for my sins and rose again. And offer me that new life for which I say yes. I renew my vows to you right now. And if any of you have not accepted that gift of Christ, I just ask as I pray this prayer, you listen. And if you agree, just to say amen. Or if you haven't today, you just want to renew your vows. Just hear this prayer. And if you say amen, what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. God in heaven, I do confess myself a sinner to you. And I know that sin makes me guilty before you. And you as a righteous judge must punish all guilt. But I believe you punished all that guilt already. All my guilt on the cross of your son, your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, who died for me, according to scriptures. Paying my debt in full. And then rose from the grave. Offering me brand new life. And I say yes to this gift. Confessing Jesus as my redeemer. My redemption. My ransom. And my Lord. Oh Lord now have me. I'm yours. If you agree. I say amen.